The Wrath of Cupid Prologue There is no question regarding when the Titans fell and the Olympians rose. Zeus proved he was stronger than his father and cut his sire apart. Such is the way of many godly sons and fathers, at least in that time. Zeus's victory shifted the age in an instant from old into new and changed all things. This age I stand within now, though, I don't find so clearly defined. Zeus lives, sits on his throne, and garners respect of lesser gods. He still rules in name. Aphrodite still resides in her palace overlooking the seas around Cyprus, and Poseidon rules those seas. The Olympians rule. And yet, things are changing with every moment, not only the most dramatic ones. Zeus's children sit in his court, and none of his sons have risen against him. It is a surprise that peace between them has been maintained for so long. I thought Apollo's disdain for Zeus's choices would have him leading a proper rebellion by now. More striking this ever-changing time, we have power, you and I. In my lifetime, I have risen from a lowly god belittled by those above me to a deity capable of turning Zeus to my will. I have accomplished feats far less mundane than slaying my own father for his throne. I have built my own throne and thrones for our people alongside as well. Are we in a new age? Can a new age of time grow into being in slow, patient ways rather than in a single bloodied moment? Perhaps we should lay out the whole story before we judge our place in the broad sweep of time. Reflections of a Too Young God I am, on the scale of divinity, a very young god. I was formed long after chaos ceded to order, after Gaia's union with Uranus created the Titans and the Cyclops, and after the Titans themselves fell from power with the rise of the Olympian era. And yet, despite my youth, I bear the power of something ancient. They may call me the god of desire, but desire and love existed in eras before I walked the earth and flew the skies. In truth, I frequently had no choice in the marks my arrows pierced. There was a voice somewhere distant that directed a vast majority of my strikes. There were times in my early years when I used the power of my quiver undirected, but most loves were planned by a hand other than my own. My arrows resisted me if I tried to strike on a whim that went against the plans of my patron. When I obeyed, it was because I feared whoever restocks my quiver may also be the one who bent the oldest of beings to love in ages past. My patron has power far beyond what I can fathom. I wonder sometimes if that makes my title a poor one. If I were a less proud god, I would perhaps call myself an agent of desire rather than a purveyor of it. As it is, I hide my methods and let people call me fickle and unpredictable. My mystery adds to my power. Not all gods and goddesses are unknowing of the greater force I channel. My parents, I am certain, are aware of the patronage of some other power in my own. Aphrodite, after all, works in a similar realm. I've never questioned her power, never asked if she hears whispers the way I do, but I suspect her commands to me often come from beyond. It was her hand that gave me the bow and quiver I carry, but I doubt my mother made them. The rulers of Olympus also seem aware of my status as a vassal of desire. 
I'm convinced that this knowledge is the only thing that protected me from Hera's rage as I notched arrow after arrow destined for the hearts of Zeus and his lovers. Now I don't need such protections, but I never would have made it this far without the auspices of desire to guard me. When I first took up the bow, I was honored by it. The power placed me above many of the minor gods who lacked my unique quality to leverage them into prominence. In my youth, I did not feel the commands of others as a burden. I took them to mean I was worth something more. The other option was to be disregarded entirely. How I began my work. My mother pressed the bow into my open palm and laid the quiver and strain in the other. She ran her hand over my newly shorn curls. I marveled at the weapon in my hand. Set your quiver to its place, Eros. Strain your bow, Aphrodite ordered me. That is, she asked with practiced motions. I barely thought of the axe as I strung the bow and touched the fletchings of my arrows for the first time. My mind was on my own pride and the glow of my imagined future as my mother's emissary. Your father says you shoot well. I shoot better than any god, I bragged before curbing my hubris half-heartedly. At least, that is what father says. Ares would not lie about such matters, Aphrodite told me, with fond pride glowing from her words. I beamed at the praise. I was a lucky bastard in a very literal sense. My father had no obligation to claim me so openly and train me as his heir. My mother had no reason to bring me to her side and anoint me as her second the way she did that day. Those small gifts would have been owed to a legitimate son, but were not owed to me, and that made me loyal and content. I could not yet imagine asking for more. You are ready. Fly out, my son. Strike at the hearts of all and make them know the power of desire. Increase my dominion and craft a name for yourself, Aphrodite commanded me with a grin. I obeyed, spreading my feathered wings and flying out of the palace. I hovered hesitantly over Cyprus. Never had I flown far from my home. I was suddenly overwhelmed by my task. There were so many mortals, and I knew so little of them. I could aim and strike true even from the great height I dallied at, but I could not begin to think of how to choose my targets. Aphrodite's instructions had been vague, and I felt unprepared for the task set before me. As I hovered there, consumed by my doubts and indecision, desire spoke to me for the first time. My patron did not stoop to words in that moment, but the message was clear and whole. There was a hum in my quiver, a tugging in my bow, that spoke to some bone-deep part of me with clarity that pulled me into motion. My hands moved without my cluttered mind opposing them. Nimble fingers drew two arrows of gold. I struck two mortals, peasants whose names are long lost to time. I wish I had bothered to note who that first couple was, but their identities seemed unimportant to me then. The couple had been walking on the road in opposite ways, nodding the casual greeting of acquaintances, and then the gold pierced their hearts. The lady stumbled and dropped her basket. The man graciously helped her gather her fallen wares. The two smiled shyly at one another and departed, this time together, speaking in low tones. My eyes were wide and wondering. My heart was quick in my chest. I wanted to cause such change again and again. I wanted to know what else I could do. 
So I drew arrow after arrow. I flew further than I had ever flown. For days I did not sleep or return home. I only listened for the call of desire and did my work with irrational zeal. When I finally returned home, I found a feast in my honor awaiting me. Ares and Aphrodite embraced me and welcomed me to my mother's table. What a dutiful warrior you are. Ares cried as he clasped my shoulder. Few could rival your determined offensive. Seven days with a weapon in hand. You must be famished. I am, I admitted. The table was set to fight back my hunger, and already seated there were my siblings, and one of the older gods of my mother's retinue, Himeros. His sour disposition kept him from approaching him that evening. My siblings demanded far more of my attention, leaping from their seats to greet me. Antros, the second son of our bloodline, was the first to cling to me. You've been gone for so long, Eros. I've missed you. I've only had the little ones to play with, Antros said. His butterfly-like wings trembled with his ill-contained discontent. I'm sorry. I have many stories to tell you, though. I'm sure I can make it up to you with those tales, I told him. Joy danced in his eyes then, and Andros's fickle mood grew light. You must tell me of all of them, Andros demanded, especially the happy ones. My agreement was interrupted by our other siblings joining us. The twins, Phobos and Deimos, were a little more than toddlers at the time, but they already knew how to stagger me with a well-executed team tackle. I struggled under their attack. Harmonia giggled at my misfortune. Perhaps you should let him breathe a bit, our sister told the twins. If you want dinner, you'll have to let him go, after all. With that, Phobos and Deimos let me go, moving like a whirlwind back to their places at the dining table. Thank you, I told Harmonia. She gave me a nod. Harmonia was the middle child and only daughter of our family. She was better than even our parents at keeping the peace, despite her youth. Peace is her domain, after all. I think some of Harmonia's power over our family came from knowing what she was capable when she was truly angered. None of us wished to face her wrath. We all settled in for dinner, and I enjoyed nectar and ambrosia. There were mortal delicacies, but no wine flowed at these festivities. This was long before the birth of Dionysus, so wine would not grace this world for generations. For all that I lamented earlier of my youth, I am still the elder to the youngest Olympians. Along with the god of wine, Athena and Hermes also came into this world after me. Though the decades between us mean little as eternity stretches before us. Their power compared to mine is more important than their ages. That night, I regaled my captive audience with story after story of all the arrows I had shot in that first week. They all oohed and awed at the right moments. Even Himeros made a lukewarm attempt at praise. I did not speak of the power that guided my aim. I bragged of perfect matches and took all the credit for myself. None of the older gods commented, and my younger siblings knew nothing. I let myself believe in my power and agency. I basked in the freedom to work and fly across the world that my siblings did not yet enjoy. In that moment, rebellion was the furthest it could be from my mind. Time moves slowly for gods. For decades upon decades, my work was much the same. Over time, my family granted less attention to my efforts. My work was the expectation set upon me. It was years later when I was first provoked towards acting on my own and shattering those expectations. In those early decades, I had not yet earned my full titles as a fickle and unkind god. 
My family was still changing and growing, setting the stage for my rebellion. In that time, I loved my home and my family beyond all else. Many gods have not been touched by my arrows. The time of my innocence is far in the past now. First strike of my own. I think my ill content truly began after Apollo slew the python. He was proud of his victory over the beast and it inflated his ego. Apollo felt his skill with the bow made him a warrior rivaling the prowess of a god of war. Gods of war have other weapons better suited for close combat than Apollo's bow. They are known to have short and bloody tempers. Perhaps that is what brought Apollo boasting to me instead of to my father or my warlike brothers. I was using my arts on the hearts of mortals near Mount Parnassus, quiverful and bow drawn, when Apollo interrupted me. His pride shone from him as he grasped my bow in one hand. What business do you have, little child, playing with the weapons of a warrior? Apollo's arrogance hung in the air, but I ignored his initial prod. I had heard things like that whispered behind my back and never let it push me to rash action. I tugged my bow from his grasp and readied an arrow once more. My mortal target continued minding his sheep on the mountainside, unaware of my aim. That bow of yours should be in the hands of a god of war, like me. That weapon deserves a warrior who can strike true and deadly wounds against beasts and enemies alike. Just recently, I faced the venomous python. His belly was wide enough to crush broad fields of wheat. I slew it with the greatest shots you would ever see. As he spoke, he stepped between me and the shepherd, unbothered by the gold-tipped arrow on the drawn cord. I cared little for his boasting. I have no interest in taking aim at the beasts of the world. The hearts of thinking beings are my prey. What beast spoils could compare to the humbling of men and gods alike? I flapped away for a clear shot at my quarry. Apollo would have to try harder to get a rise from me, for I have always been sure of my skill with the bow. And try harder he did, insulted by my disinterest. You, Eros, will have to be content kindling the flames of love, starting off some little love affair or another for all your days. You'll never earn the praise that befits gods of war like myself. That's when my temper flared bright. Apollo can boast all he likes, but belittling my art so carelessly, he was asking for war. How could a child of ours deny him that? I let the arrow fly and strike true on the shepherd. I spared no more thought to the mortal's fate. Apollo was now my quarry, and I would lay him low. Looking down upon the land, I took stock of my resources like a proper tactician. The mortals went about their business, ignorant of divine eyes upon them. Far off, by the banks of the river Peneus, a cluster of nymphs gathered. They were young and joyful, frolicking on the bank. Apollo stood gloating over his own words like a fool, ignorant of love. A plan formed in my mind. You may slay beasts with your arrows, Apollo, but my arrows shall strike true against you. As the python was helpless to your onslaught, you will be helpless to my arts. Then you will see your glory is lesser than mine. I said this and gave him no time to respond. I flew up Parnassus to the peak, letting anger speed my wings. From there I had clear shots on both my targets. I drew two arrows from my quiver and set the first upon the cord. The first arrow's shaft was ashen-colored, its tip dull and brutal. The head was made of heavy lead. 
Apollo mocked my ability to kindle love, but soon he'd regret forgetting that my quiver also bears these leaden arrows. I took aim and loosed the first arrow, and then without pause readied the next. The second arrow was the kind Apollo had belittled. Gold-tipped and keen, it would introduce Apollo to the fury of love. The arrows struck at the same moment. The golden one hit true and deep in Apollo's shoulder. The blunt lead-tipped arrow flew to the banks of the Peneus and struck the river's daughter, Daphne, making her a casualty in the war Apollo demanded. The change within them each was immediate, but it would take time for them to collide. I remained nearby to watch the tragedy, neglecting Aphrodite's court in Cyprus in favor of watching Apollo's oncoming fall. The change in Daphne was striking. The lead arrow's power caused her to scorn the very idea of love. Her disdain for marriage and romance pushed her to seek refuge in the woods. Society expects young nymphs to be brides for deities above their rank, and for the pious kings of mortals. Daphne's rejection of the norm set her apart from her kind. Daphne began wandering the untamed woodlands alone. She hunted beasts for their spoils and found herself at ease in the pathless wilderness. She slew bears and deer, carrying back pelts and trophies, the envy of any hunter. I watched her hunts, satisfied with my work. Suitors came to her father's court in droves, enchanted by the huntress. She always arrived at her father's side, late and unkempt, fresh from the hunt. She paid the suitors little mind. Daphne dismissed them as one shoes a dog too persistent in begging at its master's knee. Peneus began to realize that his prospects for a son-in-law were dwindling. He watched day after day as the men seeking his daughter left disappointed. Finally, as another failed suitor retreated and Daphne turned to her beloved woods, Peneus caught her wrist. My dear daughter, can I not find some man good enough to please you? Is there any chance you may marry? It would give me great joy to see you settled and to have grandchildren to boast about. Daphne had been waiting for this moment. She had a ploy ready to win her freedom, one that matched my desires well. Father, let me remain unmarried, Daphne said, throwing her arms around his neck. Artemis's father granted her wish to hunt eternally, unfettered by a man. Can you not grant me the same? Daphne's father granted her request. Zeus allowing Artemis to roam provided precedent for Daphne's path. It bolstered Peneus's pride to emulate the Olympian king. The long series of suitors came to an end, and Daphne ran wild in the forests, happy with her freedom. It would not last, of course, for I had chosen my target well. Her beauty combined with my power would never let Apollo disregard her. Daphne's fate was not like that of Artemis, no matter how much she wished it to be. When Apollo laid his eyes on the nymph in the woods, emulating the life of his sister, my plan for the young god came to fruition. Love burned in his heart for the first time, and he longed for her with yearning beyond understanding. His foresight and powers of premonition were choked out by his misplaced hope. My power caught him as easily as a spark catches flame to straw. Love for Daphne consumed him, and hope for both of them was lost. Thank you so much for listening to this first installment of The Wrath of Cupid. I intend to upload new episodes about once a month, so stay tuned for more. If you enjoyed it, please share, 
on any social media or just with friends. Thank you again.